Thank you for joining us today for the Restoration Church Podcast. This is the last in our United series, and we are talking about the armor of God. We hope you enjoy. Uh, misdiagnosis, healthcare issues, when someone goes to receive healthcare and gets the wrong healthcare or something in that, in that area or concept, is the third leading cause of death in the United States of America. Uh, the, when you peel back the statistics, that's what's going on. A lot of, lot of what happens is actually on, on us as the patient. Um, because we, uh, we get prescribed a pill, and uh, we, in that moment of the getting prescribed that pill, want to cure everything. Uh, it was an interesting quote from uh, one of the people interviewed on the show who said, and I'm going to pull it up here, uh, one of the doctors and researchers, uh, Dr. Wailu, uh, I think I said that correctly, uh, we are consuming 83% of the world's oxycodone in the United States, and it's not because we have 83% of the world's pain. It's because we're a consumer society that believes in the power of a magic pill. So I don't know about you, but sometimes I get caught up in looking for a magic pill. I, uh, I think that if I could just find that one, one piece of medicine, or maybe it's not necessarily pharmaceutical. Uh, maybe it's more uh, some idea that I can just find that one idea or that one strategy or that one, that one economic principle that will solve all my finances, uh, or I can find that one parenting idea that if I apply it consistently, that'll be just a magic idea that'll make me a, a great dad. Um, you may walk in here today, and you may be become very aware of recently become very aware that you're that you stink at something. Uh, maybe you've discovered that you're just not a good spouse. Uh, you thought you were. Uh, you thought you were pretty good at, at uh, roman- romancing the spouse, romancing your wife, or or taking care of your husband, you've re- recently been made aware that you just aren't very good at it, and you're facing the consequences of it. Um, maybe, you, maybe you have gotten that bill in the mail that reminded you that you really stink at, at managing your finances. Uh, you, you thought you had it figured out, you thought that last book you read, that last seminar you went to would finally be that magic pill to help you overcome the struggle uh, that you have in your finances, but here you are again, uh, in debt, more than you thought you would be in debt. Uh, not being able to pay bills that you should be able to pay. And uh, you thought the magic pill would work, but it didn't, it didn't work. Maybe you, you walk in here and you're discovering you're just not as good of a parent as you thought you were. And uh, you thought all of those principles you would apply uh, to your children and would help them grow up to be whole and sound, and uh, they, would, they would turn out to be perfect little angels. Uh, but you're really, uh, you walk in here today and you're hurting uh, because of your... Uh, you're uh, slap in the face even, that you're just not the parent you thought you were. And uh, you'd like to walk in here and hear some sort of magic pill, and that's why you came this morning. Or maybe you, you came back this morning hoping to hear, hear about some just magic thing, one, one idea you just hadn't heard. You've been, maybe been reading the Bible for years looking for that. Or maybe, you've been, uh, maybe you haven't been reading the Bible. You've been pursuing that idea somewhere else. Man, if someone would just give me this one powerful idea, I think I could overcome. Um, in some ways, I have good news for you this morning, uh, because I'm going to teach us, uh, looking at some of the things that Paul taught us, uh, that, that there is hope, but I'm also going to shatter that false reality that you walked in with, uh, that I think I have a tendency to live with, that there is a magic pill. Uh, there is no magic pill. Matter of fact, Paul is going to talk to us today about the, the reality that walking with Jesus is a fight. It's a war. It's a battle. Uh, we're going to be in the book of Ephesians, and in this book, uh, we've learned a lot about what it means to follow Jesus, what Jesus wants to do for us, and what he has done for us, and what he wants to do in us, and what he has done in us. 
But as we get into chapter 6 and towards the end of the book, uh, it's almost as if Paul wants to make sure that we don't forget something very important. And that is, is that uh, there is no magic pill, that this is a fight, this is a battle. Has anyone seen the new movie that came out recently, Hacksaw Ridge? Anybody seen that? Other than my wife and I? Really, really good movie. Highly recommend it. Um, it's about a gentleman who uh, was drafted in the Army, and uh, uh, he was a pacifist, but he wanted to serve. Uh, he still wanted to serve and find a way. So even when he was going to be uh, removed from the Army because he was a pacifist, he still wanted to find a way to give and sacrifice for his country. So he was part of one of the uh, deployments that went into Hacksaw Ridge in Japan in World War II. And many, th- many people had been uh, massacred during the attacks on Hacksaw Ridge. It was a very difficult uh, part of the battle for the United States, and it looked like we were never going to, to overcome and never going to win. Uh, when you watch the movie, and I, I researched this a little bit to make sure it's accurate before I quoted it today, but watch the movie, uh, the, the military, the U.S. military lands on a beach, or is on a beach area, and then up a cliff is uh, straight up uh, uh, several feet, looks to be about like 100 feet, uh, they had to hang, hang ropes so they could climb up this cliff, and then on top of that cliff was the battlefront. So pretty, pretty crazy battlefront. And the fighting that they did was almost always hand-to-hand because the lines would break down, uh, the, the, the amount of people flooding into one area became so overwhelmed that you, weren't, you were no longer uh, shooting a gun from a distance uh, in this battle uh, against your enemy. You were hand-to-hand with your, with your enemy maybe with a gun, maybe fighting, maybe with a knife, maybe with a bayonet. And uh, that's going to be important because as we look at the picture of the war and the battle that, uh, that Paul's going to describe that we're in, he uses a, a word uh, to describe this battle that is hand-to-hand battle, a hand-to-hand fight. And it's calling us to have the same courage that we see in Hacksaw Ridge. We'll come back to that here in a little bit. But it's the, it's the word that describes the kind of battle we're in. So when you walk in here this morning, if you're looking for a magic pill, um, I've got bad news, there is, there's no magic pill, and I've got good news. I've got really good news. Christ is not going to leave us without hope, without equipment, without armor. Christ is going to give us what we need. He has given us what we need to win the battle. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 6, and we're just going to walk through it together, uh, kind of line by line. And in the first little phrase, it says this, it says, finally be strengthened by the Lord. By his vast strength. The little phrase, be strengthened, is a uh, passive uh, imperative verb. And it means it's not something that you do to yourself. It's something that's done to you. As a matter of fact, it's a, it's a verb or a word that means to do this continually. And what Paul is saying is you need to stay strong in Christ. And by doing that, he's referring to some things he's taught us throughout the entire book of Ephesians. He's been telling us for a long time that we're in Christ. We're unified with Christ. If you're a follower of Jesus... You have now been unified with Jesus. You are in him. You are hidden in him. What is true about Jesus is now true about you. We've looked at that a lot over the last few, uh, last few weeks. And Paul is saying, it, because that's true, you have strength. You have power. And you need to stay continually strengthened by the reality that you are hidden in Christ. So let's take a second and be reminded, what does it mean to be in Christ? What do we have? Well, we could probably do this for a long time, so I'm not going to go through it uh, verse by verse, but I want us to go through several different things we have in Christ. He starts out in chapter 1, that we have every spiritual blessing. We have riches of grace and favor that really, truly belong to Jesus. We have redemption and forgiveness of sins. We have obtained the inheritance that was reserved for Christ. We have the seal of God's Spirit. 
We have wisdom and revelation concerning intimacy with God. We have riches of his, inten- of his tangible presence. Immeasurable power to be strengthened in our inner man. We have authority. All things have been put under our feet because we are one with Christ and all things are put under his feet. We have all the promises of God. Every promise of God is yes in Christ Jesus. We have unfiltered access to God. We can go on to talk about the fact that we, are, we have the filling of the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit of God living inside of us and empowering us. That's what we have in Christ. But who are we in Christ? We also have some things that we are in Christ. Uh, who are you? We are chosen by God. We are his possession. You are a prized, treasured possession of the creator, infinite God of the universe. You are holy and blameless before him. You are adopted, an adopted son or an adopted daughter of God. You are for the praise of his glory. That's who you are. You are the location of the fullness of the one who is filling everything. You are a co-heir with Christ. You are seated with Christ in the position of authority over all things. You are spiritually resurrected and alive with Christ. You are a display of His grace. In history, in the span of time, God wanted a way to show how great He was, and He wanted to show that His greatest greatness was revealed through His grace, His unmerited favor, and you are that. Thank you. Somebody say that again. Yes. Amen. You are his artwork. You are his chance to show how amazing he is. You are the dwelling place of God. You are his body. You are loved with an infinite, unstoppable, unconditional love by God. You are his bride. We could go on to say that you are a new creation, a new man, a new kind of man. That is who you are in Christ Jesus. It's what we have in Christ. That's who we are in Christ. Why? Why is all of that true of us? Is it because we're good? Is it because we earned it? Is it because we went to church enough? Is it because we paid enough money into the church? Is it because we stop doing that sin that we've been trying to stop doing? Is it because we were good, we were good parents or we were good spouses or we're good at work or we're really smart or we're superstar Christians? Is that why God gave us what he has given us and made us who we are? No. The one reason all of this is true with us is because of his grace. The only reason we have anything in Christ, the only reason we are anything in Christ is because he lavishly, unconditionally, unmerited gives us his grace and his mercy and his kindness and his compassion. It's all because of his grace. When Paul starts this text out in Ephesians chapter 6, he says, stay strong, stay empowered by God. And you do that as you remember and stay conscious and aware of who you are and what you have in Jesus Christ by grace. He goes on to say in this text, then he wants us to put on the full armor of God. Now, you'll notice there's two words there uh, that uh, might be underlined behind me. Uh, the one word is strengthened, and the other word is put. 
And in Greek, it's the word endunamathu. Uh, I'll say that wrong. Endunamathe. And endunasmutha. Now, if you'll notice, if you picked up on the, the language there, those words sound very similar. The first four letters of those words are exactly the same. Now, they don't mean the same, but they're the same. And what a writer will do, in this case Paul, he will use words that sound the same so that you know that what he's talking about with a second word is similar or related to what he's talking about with the first word. And what he's telling us is that how do we stay strong? How do we stay empowered through this reality of we, who we are in Christ? Well, he's going to tell us that in order to do so, we have to put on the full armor of God so that we can stand against the tactics of the devil. As he goes on, he talks about the, what those tactics are. And I want us to see for a second what he means by the tactics of the enemy. Let's, let's take a second to understand how does the enemy attack us. So let me, let me pause and say this. Um, if you have been a follower of Jesus for a long time, a lot of what I'm going to say today may sound not so strange, but if you are a maybe still trying to figure out who Jesus is, and maybe you've read the Bible some, but you're still very, most, you're mostly impacted by empirical data, naturalism, uh, evolution, the way the world was just put together. All you see is the empirical science in the world, and you're just trying to figure out what does this rest of the stuff going on really mean. What I'm going to say is going to sound crazy, all right? And I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that because it is a, a world, a view of the world that the Scripture consistently teaches. A world in which what we see is not all there is. A world in which there are spiritual enemies uh, uh, that attack us, that are against us. And they're all around us. They're, they're, they're around us all the time. And that we have to be equipped in the battle and in the war against those enemies to fight them. And if you've never heard that before, or if you're new to church, that may sound a little bit crazy. But when you think about it, it's not so crazy. Well, let me tell you a few reasons why it's not, it's not so crazy. We live in a world that celebrates the existence of fantasy items, imaginary beings. We live in a world where there's TV shows about ghosts. We live in a world where, uh, where in all reality, even science... Uh, for those of you who studied something called string theory, and I promise not to stay in this conversation for more than 30 seconds or 15, for those who have studied string theory, scientists have, in, in a lot of their minds, proven that there are multiple dimensions to the universe, and then there could be realities all around us that we're completely unaware of. So even science has proven that there's a possibility of a world around us that we have no, no tangible awareness of, at least at this point. So Paul's unpaws all the crazy uh, string theory talk. Uh, that's proof that I watched at least one documentary on string theory in my life, and only that, <laughs> in that perspective. So this is a crazy world in which we're reading about and studying about today, but the, the reality is that there are strategies, there are tactics that the enemy uses. What, what are those tactics? The word here is the word a methodie, uh, which literally means method, or we would get the word translated, uh, or in, in modern English, we would get the word methods from it, so we might ask, what are the methods of the enemy that he uses against us? It's a synonym for a word that means strategy that we see another place that's uh, similar context, similar ideas. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3 through 5. And so um, if you have your Bibles, and we may have, yep, we got it up there, good deal. Um, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, where Paul speaks to some similar ideas, he teaches us more about what it is that our battle is about. What are we really fighting about? What is the, the nature of? of our war. It's not bullets, right? Um, it's, not, it's not weapons, physical weapons. We're not talking about shooting missiles. We're not talking about real swords or real shields. We're talking about a different kind of warfare. Chapter 10, verse 3 of 2 Corinthians. For though we live in the body, 
Uh, we do not wage war in an unspiritual way. Sounds very similar to what he's saying in Ephesians 6, right? He's talking about the same ideas. Since the weapons of our warfare are not worldly, or they're not based on the reality that we see, but are powerful through God for the demolition of strongholds. They work. Our weapons work. We demolish what? What do you see? We demolish what? Or arguments. <laughs> we demolish, okay, good try, good try. A for effort, somebody over there. We demolish arguments in every high-minded, which probably should be translated supernatural thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God, taking every what? Thought uh, captive to obey Christ. So when we compare these two texts together, what we discover is, is that the warfare we're talking about is thought warfare, idea warfare. What the enemy wants to do is to cause you to think differently than you currently think if you are th basing your thinking on Scripture, on the gospel, on who you are and who, what you have in Jesus Christ. That is what the enemy's goal is. The enemy's goal is to cause you to think wrongly about the gospel. He wants you to have different ideas, different beliefs, different thoughts than what Ephesians has been teaching us. We can expand that to all of Scripture to understand what the Scriptures teaches us about the great work of Jesus Christ and who He has made us. So that is what our warfare is all about. Let's keep reading through uh, the text, Ephesians chapter, C, the, uh, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, the last little part there. This is why, now because there's these tactics uh, the, the enemy has uh, chosen to use against us, this is why you must make up, I'm sorry, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having prepared everything to take your stand. Now, if you notice, this is the same exact sentence in most ways as the sentence he, he basically started out this paragraph with. He's repeating himself. But he emphasizes, he repeats one thing and then he emphasizes another thing. He, re, he repeats this, how important it is that we have the whole armor of God, not a part of the armor of God. Now, this is important for us understanding this text is what he's trying to really focus us uh, in on and what our understanding really needs to be uh, uh, built upon. And that is, is that we need to have all the armor of God, not part of it. And then he adds this little phrase that's not above, so that you may be able to resist in the evil day, an evil time period, which is what, they, what the author uses to describe the, the time period from the first coming of Christ to the second, period, second coming of Christ. And having prepared everything, or having done or accomplished everything, not leaving anything undone, then you will be able to take your stand. The reason why he pauses and repeats himself and then adds this last little element onto it is because he wants us to understand that there are parts of the armor of God that are ours already in Christ. And we will have them and we will experience them. We'll see this in the text in a little bit more clear fashion in a moment. But then there is a bit of what God wants us to take up and grasp and use that we need to consistently pursue and engage in our life. Part of the fight, part of the preparation for having the battle, battle won is what Christ has already given us. Part of it is something that we need to lay, lay, lay hold on, take grasp of. Now, before I move into the next text, it's so important that we see whose armor it is we're putting on. Whose armor is it? Is it your armor or is it God's armor? It's God's armor. So when we talk about the righteousness in a moment, whose righteousness are we talking about? When we talk about truth, are we talking about your truth or God's truth? In a relativistic society, that's important. When we talk about the gospel, when we talk about um, the salvation, when we talk about the word, we're not talking about something that we come up with. 
And especially when we talk about righteousness, we're talking about, not talking about our righteousness, we're talking about the armor of God, an armor that belongs to him, that he created, that comes from him, not our own. This word to stand is used again in Colossians uh, chapter 4, verse 12. If you're uh, new to the Bible, uh, you, might, you might not be, be aware, um, maybe a lot of us aren't aware, that Ephesians and Colossians are very similar books. They use a lot of the same material. Matter of fact, you can learn a lot about the book of Ephesians by reading Colossians. You can learn a lot about the book of Colossians by reading Ephesians. Uh, the, the Bible would include two different books so that we have two different perspectives. Very similar to the way we have Matthew, Mark, and Luke as a synoptic gospel, so look at Jesus' life through different perspectives, right? So when we get to Colossians chapter 4, verse 12, um, we're going to see uh, a word come up that has come up several times in Ephesians 4. As a matter of fact, what, um, Ephesians, 5, Ephesians 6, Colossians doesn't have this spiritual warfare passage in it. What it does have is a, a reminder of Epaphras, maybe even meant to be read as an example of what it looks like to, to live, in, live in spiritual warfare. Colossians chapter 4, verse 12, here's what it says. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Jesus Christ, greets you, always struggling, battling at war on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured, confident without doubting, which means confident. What's in brackets is my, my interpretation you would stand mature and fully assured, confident without doubt, doubting in all the will of God. So why do we go there? Why do we look at that text? The word stand, mature, is the same word that we see in Ephesians 6. So the whole goal, we want to remain strong. How do we remain strong? We put on all of God's armor. Why do we want to put on, put on God's armor? What's the goal? To stand. Now when Colossians translates this, he uses the idea of maturity. To stand mature. It's the same thing that what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4 is why he gave us the church. So that we would no longer be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine or wrong belief or wrong thinking, the wrong ideas, right? The same thing we were just talking about. But we would become a what? A mature man instead. And that we would be able to withstand the human conceit and spiritual methodia, which is the strategies, the enemies, the tactics, so what Paul is saying is that the whole goal is spiritual maturity, and then he helps us understand what maturity is. And this is so important to understanding Ephesians chapter 6. This is what maturity is, to be fully assured in who you are in Christ, to be fully assured in what Christ has done for you and why he's done it. That's what this text is about. It's about being absolutely certain and confident without any doubting as to what God has done for you in Christ Jesus. The enemy wants you to be defeated, not by making you sin, not by making you uh, make a bad name for Jesus. All that stuff's horrible, but his root issue, and if he gets this right, he gets everything else right. All of those other things will happen if he defeats us at the root, and the root is who we are in Jesus, what the gospel means to us, and what the gospel means who we are and what he's done for us. That is his attack. He wants to move us off of certainty. He wants to move us off of confidence. He wants to introduce doubt into our minds as to who we are and what we have in Christ and why we have it because of his grace, which means you can't lose it. You can't abandon what God gives you by grace because you didn't do anything to earn it in the first place. That's the enemy's tactics. 
He wants to move us from being fully assured. That's what this word stand truly is focusing on. Stand confident. Stand, stand assured. He goes on in chapter 6, verse 14. Stand therefore. He repeats the word, and then he's going to elaborate a little bit more on what does it mean to have this whole armor of God. Stand therefore with, a, with truth like a belt around your waist. Righteousness like armor on or put on your chest. And your feet sandaled or tied with readiness for the gospel, the announcement of peace. Now these three words, I underlined them on the screen in front of you because they're three passive participles, which means they're things that have been done for us already. These aren't things you have to go get. They're yours. Wear them. They're already in your closet. Uh, I, I like it when I get a new pair of shoes. Matter of fact, I like new pairs of shoes so well when I was a kid and I would get a new pair of shoes, I would set them up on my dresser where I could wake up at night and look over at my new pair of shoes and just smile. Because I like new pairs of shoes. I know that makes me sound a little bit more like a woman than I plan to. But I'm okay with that. Because I like new shoes. And uh, it's fun to look in your closet and find new things, right? It's fun uh, maybe after, after the holiday season, after Christmas, you'll open up your, you'll open up your uh, closet and you'll see some new, some new things. What, what Paul is trying to help us know is that when we open up our closet, we already have the righteousness of God. We already have the announcement of peace that prepares our feet, that ties up our feet to go. We already have truth, the truth of the gospel. We're not looking for a new truth. We don't need another truth. We don't need another nuanced understanding. We just need the gospel, and we need to return to it again and again and again. And if you're looking for something more, then the basic, simple principle of the gospel and the promise of the gospel and what it means for us to be in Christ, if you're looking for something more, can I humbly and gently challenge you that you may have never seen the gospel the first time? If you're looking for that other idea, that other principle or that other application or that other command or that other Greek word or that other theological principle, if you're looking for something more than the gospel, if it's not enough, Look deeply, because you, have ne you may never have actually encountered the gospel. When you encounter the gospel, it's enough. Paul switches his verb tense, which is important, believe it or not. You're like, why didn't I listen more in grammar school if I knew I was going to listen to Lance preach? Because he switches his, he switches his, mood, his voice, actually, uh, for the grammarians in the room. He switches his voice, and now he's going from passive to active. This is the first active participle we see. It's still a participle, so it's still part of this flow. There's three things that he's told us to do. Put the belt around our waist, put on the, the, the breastplate of righteousness, tie up our feet so we're ready for the announcement of peace. We're prepared for it. And then he switches to active. He says this, in every situation, take up the shield of faith. Or in all of these things that I've been talking about, take up the shield of faith. This is our active part. This is the first shift in this text to show us the active part. In every situation, take the shield of faith. And with it, you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. We don't have time to look at it tons, but this is a very similar or maybe even parallel repetitive idea of what he said earlier. He said earlier, if you put on the whole armor of God, you'll be able to stand the, the schemes and the strategies of the evil one, of the devil. Here he says, if you take up the shield of faith, the same word, 
You will be able to, same word, to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil, evil one. So he's repeating these ideas over and over again. And by doing that, he's emphasizing our responsibility in this, in this conversation. Our responsibility is to have faith, to trust that what he said about us was true. Not to do, but to believe. Not to act, but to have confidence. Not to look at how we can do better and be better, but trust how he is better and has done better already for us. To focus on the gospel. Faith is what activates, makes the other gifts come alive. And then he goes on in chapter 6, verse 18. And uh, for those of you who've been paying attention, you'll know that there's been four participles that have described how we can be put on the whole armor of God. We stand, we put on our truth around our waist, we put on the breastplate of righteousness, and we uh, tie up our feet so that we're ready to, for the announcement of peace. Our feet are ready. We're waiting for that announcement of peace. Ready. We activate all that through this fourth participle, faith. We, we, we trust that all these things are ours. And then he actually gives us another command. A command. Not something that's been done to us or for us, but a command to do something beyond that. Take up the helmet of salvation. Grasp it. Take it. And the sword of the Spirit, which is God's Word. Pray at all times in the Spirit. And every prayer and request. And stay alert in this with all perseverance and intercession for all the saints. Pray also for me that the message may be given to me when I open my mouth. To make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. For this I am an ambassador in change. Pray that I may be bold enough in him to speak as I should. Does it, does it make you a little bit comfortable that Paul was scared to preach the gospel sometimes? I don't know about you, but that makes me feel good. Because sometimes I'm nervous about sharing my faith and sharing who Christ is. Paul's saying he had the same thing. And without supernatural intervention, he wouldn't do so. But I want us to look at something earlier from the text. So if you go to the next screen up there, because it may not be obvious. One more. All right. Good deal. Now, I know it's dangerous to say, admit that I did this in public in a nice conservative Christian group here. But I've moved around some of the text here. And the reason why I moved it around is because it's what's actually in the Greek text. And I think if you read it out of order, it can be misleading as to what Paul's saying. It says, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, and you command, which is God's Word, through every kind of prayer and request, praying at all times in or with the Spirit. So what did I rearrange? I put the part through every kind of prayer and request, as it is in the Greek, right after, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, sword of the Spirit which is God's Word. I think that's important because I think he's telling us what our main action is in this text. He's really given us one so far with faith. But faith is really about non-action, isn't it? It's about trusting what someone else has done. This is truly our action. How do we take up the sword? How do we take up the word of God? How do we use the helmet of salvation? Which this doesn't mean becoming a believer or getting saved. This is for already saved people, this whole text. He's telling us how we engage in gospel um, advancement with a helmet of salvation. How do we do that well? How do we take up the sword of the word of God well? Which may be the scripture. It may be hearing God's voice. The word. And it's actually the Greek word rima, which if you're familiar, is typically more of a spoken word uh, concept. It can be both. So how do we take it up? He tells us that we take it up through every kind of prayer and request praying at all times in the Spirit. Or I guess to summarize it, he tells us that we 
take up this last part of the armor of God by praying in the Spirit. Now remember where he started. If you're going to be strong, you have to put on the whole armor of God. Not just part of it, but the whole armor of God. Accomplishing that which is missing, or accomplishing everything, putting on everything, preparing for every part. And the reason he says that is because he's going to teach us about a part we have a tendency to miss. And then, as if he's building tension, what are we missing about the whole armor of God? We've got the righteousness, we've got the truth, we've got the gospel of peace, we've got, uh, we've got everything we need. And he's telling us, okay, we need to take up the, the helmet of salvation, we need to take up the sword of the Spirit. But how do we do that? Praying in the Spirit. Continually, everywhere, at all times, praying, but not just praying. Praying in the Spirit. What does it mean to pray in the Spirit? Well, it might be better to understand that word is with. In the same way that it says in, uh, in Galatians, if you walk in the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. It could also mean walk with the Spirit or walk in friendship and personal relationship with God's Spirit. You will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. In the same way, this is most likely telling us that we need to pray not just to God, but with God. It's a, it's a with, not a to. Here's how Martin Luther uh, spoke to that. And as you listen to this quote from Martin Luther, read it on the screen behind you, think about how relevant this is to this whole text. If... As we are meditating or praying, an abundance of good thoughts comes to us. We ought to disregard the other petitions, make room for such thoughts, listen in silence, and under no circumstances obstruct them. The Holy Spirit himself preaches here. And one word of his sermon is better than a thousand of our prayers. Many times I've learned more from one prayer than I might have learned from much, much reading and speculation. He goes on to say, If in the midst of such thoughts, the Holy Spirit begins to preach to your heart with rich and lightning thoughts, honor Him by, by letting go of the written scheme, in other words, your plan. Remember what He says and note it well, and you will be wondrous, you will behold wondrous things in the law of God. That was Martin Luther, by the way. I wasn't some nut, Right? That was Martin Luther telling us to listen to the Holy Spirit of God speak to us. And when our prayer is not just a dictation to, a proclamation to, a list of requests presented to God, but a conversation with God through His Spirit, then we are praying. When we are hearing as much as we are saying, then we are praying. When your prayer is less dictation and more conversation, then we are praying. When your relationship with God is a relationship, a friendship, truly hearing the voice of God, not just reading the scripture, not just uh, hearing sermons, not just reading books, but when your relationship with God is truly a conversational friendship, then and only then are you able to take on what's missing and what you might be missing from the armor of God. You might be sitting here today wondering why life continues to be a struggle. A really difficult struggle. Why that you come back again and again and again to the same temptation? Could it be that you're missing part of the armor of God? And the part of the armor of God that you're missing, how you take it up is by listening and talking and praying in the Holy Spirit. 
We have to return back to Hacksaw Ridge. The story is of, of, this, of this gentleman, uh, this pacifist who goes up on the, the top of Hacksaw Ridge. And he, the entire battle never picks up a, a weapon, a gun, uh, because that's against his beliefs. The entire battle, he's pulling people off Hacksaw Ridge. As a matter of fact, all the, all the, the, the combatants actually leave Hacksaw Ridge because they're getting overrun. He stays up there throughout the entire night pulling people off Hacksaw Ridge. Not just pulling them off, but pulling them off in fire, on gunfire, lowering them down the cliff one after the other until 75 people who would not have been saved were saved by the bravery of a man who all night long kept fighting and kept struggling. That's the story of a hero. Jesus invites you into the story of a hero, a story where he's the hero, where he's the one saving lives. And when he invites us into that story, here's what he asks us to do. Here's where he focuses our struggle, because it's still a struggle, right? Remember, he started there. It's still a fight. But what is the fight? What is the struggle that we should be facing? Is it to say no to something too many times or say yes to something too many times? That's not the fight. Paul says that's not the battle. The struggle, the focus, our energy, our effort has to be placed in one very focused area. For us to join the fight, for us to join our hero at war, and see the victory that he has won and experience it most deeply and truly in our lives, we have to join him in the struggle of a relationship, of a friendship, of hearing the Spirit of God speak to us in our hearts as he, like Martin Luther shared, preaches the gospel into our minds, into our hearts. And as we receive what pleasure, what glory, what good news. That's what Ephesians 6 challenges us to think and to do as we engage in this battle. Let's pray.